Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money, powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Gur Roshwalb from Amoon Investments. In this episode, Giovanni and Gur discuss his background in becoming an investor, Amoon Investment Fund, how they invest, why they love medtech, investing in both early and late stage companies, the Israel medtech scene, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Gur. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. So I want to thank you very much, Gur for being here and we'll certainly get you introduced and there's nobody better to do that than yourself. But I wanted to set the stage with first and foremost, why we're here. And then ask you a couple questions just to engage the audience before we formally get to understand who you are and how you got to be partner at a moon fund. So I've talked to thousands of med tech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've personally discovered is that there's really no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in med tech. And so my goal here is to really extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs and investors like yourself so that we can help those who can benefit from this information and obviously generations of either investors or entrepreneurs to come. So what I imagine this audience listening in on is a mixture of either experts or novices. Uh, However, what I wanted to extract is your stories and insights and advice to share with what I imagine is the first time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead of them on the journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And so why I chose and wanted to be here with you today is first and foremost, um, to give insight into Amoon and some of that philosophical um, insight as to why you guys invest, how you guys invest, what you guys invest in, um, and then also certainly get that Israeli perspective, which I think would be quite fascinating for the audience to hear. So uh, first couple questions that I wanted to open up with just to set the stage. Do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I missing anything? Oh, first of all, thank you, Giovanni, for having me here today. Let me start out with that. Very happy to be here and uh, hope my pithy advice is useful to entrepreneurs out there and, and potential investors over time. So uh, money is essential. Uh, you know, I very much think of it like the human body. You need air and blood, right? No air, no blood. That's the point. However, uh, the essence of any company is always going to be the management. I don't disagree that the science is important and all that other stuff. But in the end of the day, if you don't have good management, Time and again, uh, it's demonstrated both in uh, the literature of venture capital, the science of venture capital, and especially the art of venture capital, that you need to have great management. Because in the end of the day, uh, if I may uh, paraphrase a saying about uh, war and uh, battle plans, there is no, there is no, um, there is no business plan that survives contact with the market unchanged, and. And you have to have a management that's nimble enough to recognize that, to think ahead about it, to not just think about it, but also plan. You know, you plan for success, but you also have to plan for failure or plan for changes. And if you don't have that management team doing that, it's not going to work. Couldn't agree with you more. And thank you for that more detailed explanation. And, And that second question. And by the way, before I move on, people and money, and like you mentioned, the the technology or maybe the IP comes tertiary, but is there anything else at a high level that you think that you could throw in a category of what's absolutely essential, people, money, IP? Am I missing mm-hmm. anything? So, so let me tell you something. It's an interesting question in the med tech world. It depends how you invest, okay? 
Uh, I have a particular bias, and I know we had it when we uh, started out this discussion, and we'll get to my background later. I'm a little more of a biotech guy than a medtech, but I do do both in tools and diagnostics, et cetera. Um, but I have a bias in medtech. And my bias in medtech is that what you're building has to be a need to have, not a nice to have. Okay, and I'll tell you why I said that. Um, and you mentioned the Israeli angle. There's, so, so medtech in Israel has been relatively successful. Okay, there have been a lot of venture funds in Israel on the med tech side that have had good returns and they continue to have good returns. Um, but in the end of the day, a lot of what I'm seeing in med tech now, this is not just Israel, this is really worldwide, is building better mousetraps. Better mousetraps can make you money, but they don't make you venture-like returns. And so for us to invest where we want to see venture-like returns, if we can discuss why we need venture-like returns later, if you want, um, I need to have a device that's, a, that's innovative, disruptive, and a need to have. If it's a nice to have, it's too hard. In this world where it's hard to get reimbursement, and reimbursement takes time, right? You know, you have a device out there, you need a J code, a reimbursement. That can be a two-year process, if not longer. You need to get it into the, uh, into the guidelines, right? That doesn't happen overnight. That's, you know, multiple studies, and then you have to start the guideline process. Whatever it is, this stuff takes time, and so for it to work, it's got to be something that is just, if I don't do it, you know, um, there's, uh, if you may be familiar with the iron triangle of healthcare, right? You can change access, you can change cost, you can make it better for patients. Okay, those are, the, those are sort of the things. And if you make it better for patients and you give improved access, you're going to increase costs. Okay, these are in dynamic tension. The best companies, the best devices are things that affect two of those part of the uh, two two points in the iron triangle and not just one. So again, I, I just bring it back to, if it's not a need to have, we're not going to be investing in it. Well, thank you for that. That was, that was quite fascinating, actually. Um, my second question, then we'll get into the, the main show of you. Um, if you knew what you know now about being in med tech, or even more specifically, a med tech life science investor, as well as an entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? And what would you do differently? Yes. So let me start out with the, with the thesis. The, 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 uh, the answer is yes. I love what I do. Okay. I'm not saying I'm going to make mistakes on the way. So if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably avoid some of those mistakes. Um, but, you know, it's a few things. And I guess uh, it somewhat comes to my background, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I love working with entrepreneurs. I love being on the cutting edge of science, and I love having an impact on the world. Um, and truly, I think the theme for me is, uh, we have a saying at Amun, which is doing well by doing good. And I think being a med tech or health tech investor is one of the areas where you can truly leverage what's going on in the world to have tremendous impact. Love that. Okay, without further ado, Gur, we've been alluding to it. Who are you? How did you get to where you are? And tell us a little bit about the fun stuff along the way. Absolutely. Thank you, Giovanni. Who am I? So uh, let me start off by saying I'm 52 and we only have uh, 50 minutes left. So, you know, if I take a year or a minute, it's going to take a long time, but I won't do that. Uh, I originally born in New York, uh, grew up in New York. In fact, I did all my schooling in New York. And before I joined AMUN, the longest I'd been outside of New York was two and a half years, uh, two and a half months. Uh, and that's because I did all my schooling. I didn't get into Harvard. Let me just put that out there up front. Um, I went to Columbia for college. I went to Albert Einstein for medical school. I got medical, my medical degree in 1994. I then did my, resident, my internship and residency at Mount Sinai in internal medicine uh, in New York. And I was chief resident at Mount Sinai in 97, 98. I think if I stayed uh, in academic medicine, I'd probably still be back practicing medicine today. But I didn't. I went into private practice as a general internist on uh, 32nd in Lexington. I was a group of uh, five people. I was the youngest of five. The oldest had just retired. He was a general practitioner. I joined three gastroenterologists and one hematologist oncologist. Um, and one of the reasons they brought me in in 1998 was to help them, aside from you know, doing the regular medicine that I was doing, seeing patients, uh, covering the hospital work, et cetera. Uh, was to help them think about electronic medical records. And I want to put this in context. This is now 1998. It's very forward thinking at the time. Um, and I, uh, you know, uh, for what it's worth, I got my first computer on my bar mitzvah in 1983. It was an Apple II Plus. Okay, so 
I've uh, been, you know, very computer savvy uh, from back in the day. Um, and I did work on looking at uh, electronic health records at the time, and I made a proposal to them. And I will tell you that at the time, Epic, for example, was I think something like 25,000, license fee was $25,000 per physician per year. For the five of us, $125,000, okay? And they said, no, don't wanna do it. And I didn't understand at the time. And it took me a little bit to understand that they were right because they would spend $125,000 for a year, right, for this system, but it wasn't going to increase their revenues in any way. Okay, they weren't going to see more patients. If anything, it was going to slow them down because of all the record keeping instead of writing scribble, right? I do actually believe that electronic medical records, if done correctly, are phenomenally better for patients. Phenomenally better, okay? Fewer mistakes on medications, et cetera. Uh, better recall of information, et cetera. But in the end of the day, unless they were going to fire somebody, it was going to be a cost center to them that didn't justify. That was my first real business lesson, okay? Hmm. Um, and so I decided I was going to write my own electronic medical record. And I learned Visual Basic and SQL and databasing, something I had not been that involved with beforehand. And I'm writing my electronic medical record. Okay, I'm working at it hard. And my wife, who, by the way, is from France, this is relevant um, because uh, she came from a very different educational system than I did. As I said, you know, I grew up in New York in the American educational system. And she now decides to go to business school and she's studying for the GMAT. And she is not as proficient in uh, multiple choice testing as I am. Okay. Uh, I am a master of multiple choice tests, as you can imagine. And so I'm helping her, by the way, just a little bit of um, cultural uh, oddity that I find really, really funny. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Hebrew, um, the way you say multiple choice tests in Hebrew, or if you were to translate it directly, is American test. Right? Just so you know, it's kind of American. It's kind of funny. Uh, but funny. it's kind of true because I am a master of multiple choice tests. I'm helping my wife study. She gets into business school. She is now, um, you know, helping her with her stats class. And I recognize that, you know, my brain is alive. It, it, doing private practice, I was kind of, I was kind of uh, stultifying. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, challenging to me um, because you're sort of chasing the next patient to make the buck, okay? Um, learning medicine is exciting. Practicing was getting a little bit boring. Um, and so... I like what my wife is doing. I'm trying to write an electronic, electronic medical record. This is key to me. It was obvious to me at that point that I needed to do something different. I needed to be challenged. So I decided I wanted to get into, uh, into venture capital. Why? Because I thought it sounded sexy. Didn't know anything about it, to be honest. And I went and I interviewed a couple of places. And I want to put this in context of the time. This was May of 2000. Okay. And you may recall that May of 2000, the markets blow up. Okay. Absolutely blow up. Right. Exactly. And so I interviewed at a couple of places and I was politely told that I know a lot of medicine, but I don't know anything else. And I'm not bringing them anybody else's money. Really? What use am I? Okay. Uh, so I thought about it and I said, you know what? I need to learn more. So what does every good doctor do? He goes and he studies. I went to I got into NYU at night, see, still in New York. <laughs> uh, I went to business school at NYU. I took the, uh, uh, the night classes. I started in 2002. Um, in 2004, the markets, I guess, had improved enough that I was able to get a job at Piper Jaffray, which is an investment bank as a sell side equity analyst. Now, why that? If you think about what I was trying to do, I'm trying to take, recreate my career being a physician and doing something with it, okay? But nobody really, there, there are only about four or five places where they'll train you to do that, okay? In other words, walk in and say, we want you as a physician, and we're going to give you the training you need. Management consulting, equity research, either on the buy side or the sell side. But the problem is if you go to the, sell, if you go to the buy side, if you're an investor, you just walk in as an investor day one, you don't go to a good place, you're going to flame out, okay, really quickly. You really need to have good teachers, Okay, and I think if I have to, if you're gonna ask me like, what's a big takeaway from all this, whether it's being a sell side analyst or the rest of my career that you hear about, get yourself good mentors. It's really key, okay? Uh, anyway, um, so equity research analyst, management consultant, um, uh, you can go into industry, right? And a few other places where they'll train you 
on the one side while they need you on the other. But I ended up being able to get a job at Piper Jaffray as a sell side equity analyst. I joined in 2004, um, 2006 and a half. I got, I got my MBA and I got promoted to, uh, to, a, to a senior research analyst. I was covering specialty pharmaceuticals at the time, um, but I'd always wanted to get over to the buy side. And in 2008, I landed a job at Benrock, which is a venture capital group uh, in New York and California and Boston. Finally, after they all opened that time. up a public, right? Finally, uh, they opened up a public healthcare equity group. Okay, uh, which is a long only fund. So I, uh, in 2008, again markets blow up, but we raised, they raised money. I had nothing to do with it. It had a good timing, because between 2008 and 2000, 2008 and a half and 2009, you could have invested in almost anything in healthcare. If you did it broadly, it was up 100. The NBI was up 100% year over year, right? And a rising tide floats all boats. Anyway, um, joined that fund, did actually pretty well, um, was a good investor. I learned a lot about investing from really great people there. Again, find your mentors. It's a phenomenal group. Um, 2013, I had wanted to get some operational experience. I spun out a company, raised capital. Uh, it did not separate from placebo, um, but it was, uh, it was a public entity, reversed, merged with another public, uh, with another company that wanted to go public but stayed as CEO, learned a really important lesson there. I stayed as the CEO, but the person who, took, who, who was the founder of the other company became the executive chairman uh, and owned 60% of the combined companies. And I'd raised $75 million for them. It's not like I wasn't relevant to the whole thing. Uh, and we ended up clashing because he was not a biotech person, did not really understand the industry and was not letting me be CEO. I resigned, it was unfortunately a little bit ugly. Um, but that was important to me because it said, it asked me, it forced me to ask myself the fundamental question that you have asked, which is what do I want to do and why am I doing it? And my answer was, I want to have more impact. I want to really make a difference. And so I ended up taking over a, a private biotech company for a while, but I'd always wanted to bring my biotech expertise to Israel, because I really think it's a place where there's a, there's a burgeoning biotech industry, and there's a tremendous convergence between health tech, health, you know, technology and healthcare that I think can really change the world around us today and make, have a positive impact. And for those of you who, who don't know this clearly, because I didn't say anything about it, my mother's Israeli, I'm Orthodox, so there's a connection there. It wasn't just sort of out of the blue. Um, and I ended up joining Amun, um, first as a managing director and recently promoted to partner. Who is Amun or what is Amun? Amun is now Israel's largest healthcare venture capital fund, health tech, I should really say. Uh, it started out originally as the family office of Marius Nock. Marius is one of the co-founders of Checkpoint Software. Uh, Checkpoint Software, as you may know, were one of the originators of the firewall. He had his fingerprints all over the first firewall. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, he did really well. Uh, he decided to, he, he is a tech person, as you can imagine, and along with our managing partner, co-founder, Eric Schindel, who's a physician by background and an entrepreneur, they really saw several years ago this common convergence. If you think that cybersecurity is a big wave, they really felt that the convergence of tech and health is going to be a tsunami, okay? And they wanted to invest in that and become a part of it. So the original pool of capital we invest out of is Marius's money, uh, but then they went and raised a late stage, seven, a multi-LP, $750 million late stage fund. We're a global investor. We invest all over the world. Uh, currently, give or take in our late stage fund, we're about 40, 40 to 45% invested in Israel and Israel-related companies, about 40 to 45% in the US and another 10 to 15%, depending how you cut it, in Europe. Uh, we invest across healthcare, digital devices, drugs, and diagnostics. Um, you know, if we don't edit this, what I'd say is if you look across the, uh, the group of investors uh, that I invest with, the partners in the group, some of them do digital, some of them do tools and diagnostics, I do drugs, okay? But I also do med tech and tools and diagnostics too. My focus is mostly therapeutics. Um, we also have an early stage seed and A round fund, uh, which is $115 million, give or take. So we invest either early or late. It's sort of a barbell strategy, and I'm on the late stage team. Um, we very, very much care about partnering with entrepreneurs who want to make a difference. Okay, We are looking for the best entrepreneurs, 
And we are active investors. We take board seats because we truly want to be value adds. Your earlier question, is it money? Is it people? It's both, but we're not just a check. Okay, we want to truly make a difference and we want to help entrepreneurs make a difference. Um, and I'll stop there. Well, I got a lot of questions for you. I mean, that was a, a great <laughs> opening. Um, let, let's first clarify a couple of things. So a moon, does it stand for something or is it just all about moonshots? Uh, it stands for that moonshots. Actually, the word moon in Hebrew means uh, trust between people. There you go. And okay. we're big believers in trust because in the end of the day, our business venture capital is about trust. Right. And it's not just a check. And if you don't trust the people you're working with, you'll never get anywhere. Um, so we truly, truly believe in building relationships of trust with our entrepreneurs and within our ecosystem, um, because that's how you get the best out of people. So this is a, a multi-layered question that I have for you, but you mentioned that roughly around 45 percent of your fund is dedicated to Israel, which slightly less than half, but not much. And Israel, the size of New Jersey versus that global outlook that you guys actually have in terms of investing and the startup nation combined with all these stereotypes. I mean, what is it about Israel? Like why, why is there such this amazing concentration? And then also having the amount of deployable funds that you have, roughly half of it is right in your backyard. And once again, the size of New Jersey as a country versus the rest of the allocation that's around the world. I mean, how does that work? Right. So, so to be fair, I think you have to change the paradigm a little bit of how you're thinking about it. And what I would call it is tech hubs, right? Um, it's not a comparison, to be fair, between the United States and Israel or Europe and Israel, because those are big places in little Israel. You're 100% right about that, the size of New Jersey. It's really about what I would call tech hubs, where you have concentrations of great universities and a certain entrepreneurial mindset. And so if you wanna look at those hubs, then you're talking about San Francisco, San Diego, you're talking about Boston, New York is trying, maybe it's getting there. There's some in Switzerland, the UK. And if, if you look at those hubs, you'll then see that they're much more equal, okay? Um, there are something like 2000 healthcare startups in Israel Okay, of which about uh, five to 600 are in the late stage. Right now, a bunch of them fail, a bunch of new ones start up. But that number of startups is pretty much what you'll find in Boston in healthcare, pretty much what you'll find in San Francisco in healthcare. So in that sense, it's sort of the same. What's missing to your point is really two elements. Um, experienced managements, not that we don't have some, but we don't have the same record of success. You don't have all the big farmers like you do in Boston and uh, that whole milieu that's helping build that entrepreneurial spirit, okay? Um, and a capital base, as you spoke about. We are, in some sense, the solution to the lack of the capital base. If you look at the number of venture funds in Boston, the number of venture funds in San Francisco, the amount of capital that's available there for sort of the same number of companies in essence, maybe it's a little more, few, maybe a few more companies, but not, you know, relatively speaking, if you look at the ratio, it doesn't come anywhere equal. There's just a lack of capital. And so one reason that AMUN exists is to solve that, solve that thing. However, you raise an interesting question. What is it about Israel that allows for this sort of entrepreneurial spirit? And I think it's a few things, okay? First of all, specifically on the healthcare side, 98% of the Israeli population belongs to one of four HMOs. That's the way the healthcare system here works. Okay, they belong to it for life. They all have electronic medical records and they've had them for 20 years. That amount of data is transformational. And being able to access that data, think through that data, especially in today's day and age with machine learning and AI and all that other stuff, it has created so many companies because of access to that type of data. The largest repository of data is actually Kaiser Permanente, but Israel is number two and three, okay? Two of the HMOs, Klalit and Maccabi, are number two and three in terms of repositories of medical data. That's the first thing. The second thing is, believe it or not, that I think the fact that uh, we have a mandatory draft, um, and although I wasn't part of that because I grew up in New York, my daughter just joined the Army. Um, I'm very proud of that. Shout out to you, Ariane. Um, <laughs> but the fact that you take a bunch of 18-year-olds 
and you teach them a command mindset, a flexibility. Like my, my daughter in the army complains about the fact that she doesn't know where she's going to be tomorrow in the sense that, you know, she's given a project to take care of, but she's not told whether you're going home for the weekend or not going. Everything is sort of last minute. Now, that may sound like a big, you know, jumble of what's going on, but the army is actually very well organized. One of the reasons they do that is they're trying to stop you from having an ossified way of thinking. They want you to be mentally flexible, to roll with the punches, to react as needed when you need it, and they train you to do that. When you take that sort of mindset, that is an entrepreneur, okay? That is truly an entrepreneur. Um, and I think it's elements like that. We have great universities, okay? The Weizmann Institute, the Technion, Hebrew University, Ben-Gurion University, um, great science going on. You take these people who are trained in a flexible entrepreneurial mindset and you add that massive amount of data and you create a health tech hub. So then I like that word, that tech hub that you brought out and, and even the dynamics of wrapping Israel, small country around a tech hub and comparing it to Boston, et cetera. So interesting data and insight. What are the elements, the fundamental elements that make up a tech hub then? I mean, if it's, let's just call it transferable. If it's the same in Israel as it is in Boston and San Francisco and Switzerland, what makes a tech hub according to you? Oh, that's a, that's a good question, which I'm sure I'm not going to answer really well, but I can tell you some of the elements. I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts on that, but maybe when I'm interviewing you, you'll tell me. Um, <laughs> so the first thing is, I think you have to have great universities. I really do. I think great universities make a difference. Um, but there are a lot of cities with great universities that are not tech hubs, that have not succeeded in that way. Uh, but great universities, I think, are important. Um, on the healthcare side, I think you also have to have great hospitals, okay? Um, it's important to actually have that sort of innovation where you're not just do it in the lab, but you also have places to test it in the field, okay? The, the third thing is, I think you need to have a capital base. You have to have capital will. And one of the reasons that many, many uh, entrepreneurs and companies end up coming to the United States for capital is because that's where the money is, right? Sort of like that joke, uh, they asked the bank robber, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do people go to the US to get investors? Because US investors or a set of US investors have been, US investors have been trained to invest in healthcare. Investing in healthcare in general has to be patient capital you're not going to see a return on your investment in a year. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but in general, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time. Now the market's also generally in the United States. So there's another reason to go there. Um, and so that's two reasons, but in the end of the day, because the market's in the United States, the capital base is in the United States. Now, lots of people are trying to solve that problem like Emun is trying to solve it for Israel by providing a capital base for late stage companies. But I think you need Great universities, great hospitals, capital base, and in the end of the day, still come back to people, 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 uh, great management teams. So th this word, I mean, it's been thrown around for a while, but it really was thrown in everyone's face, especially with this whole COVID situation. But um, health tech, right, which sounds a little obvious, but when we think about medical devices, for example, or biotechnology or pharmaceuticals, there's a, and I'm thinking from the FDA perspective, there's a very identifiable regulation that wraps around them. Like what is a class one device? What is a class two device? What is a class three device, et cetera? Um, what, is, what, what is your definition of health tech? Like what-, what My definition of, of health tech is the convergence, the convergence of technology and healthcare. Uh, and I can give you, I guess, best answer by examples, okay? okay? We have what I would call the omics revolution going on right now. We have genomics. Everybody knows about, you know, sequencing the gene. We went from a million dollars a gene to a thousand dollars a gene and it's going lower. Okay. But on top of that, we have RNA-seq where we can read the RNA that's coming out because, you know, there are 20,000 genes, 20, 25,000 genes in the human genome. There are over 100,000 proteins. Okay. So those 20,000 genes don't turn into 20,000 proteins. They're multiplied into hundreds of thousands of proteins. And how does that happen? Okay. And what proteins are they, right? I could tell you what genes are on or off, but it doesn't necessarily translate it to what proteins are on or off as directly as you would think. So now we have proteomics, right? We're now measuring the proteins that are created in an unbiased way. All right. And then we have metabolomics, right? If those proteins are being made, what is the outcome of those proteins from an embolic point of view, et cetera, et cetera. We have in the last few years have had a revolution, 
honestly, in the tools that we have available to us to query the, the biologic systems in the human body, okay? And it's fundamentally changing how we understand things and it's creating an opportunity for new drugs and new therapeutic modalities. And that's not just because I can build a better microscope. It's because I now have computing power that can crunch through those numbers. It's because I have machine learning that can find patterns that a human mind can't see. That's health tech in the omics, okay? That's one type of health tech. We have another type of health tech, which I would call digital diagnostics, okay? Which is, you know, how does, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna continue to talk as I do this, but my battery is running low. So apologies for the, we're gonna edit this part out. <laughs> Plug myself no in here, hold on. I know how it feels. You know, we have a company that we invested in called Cypher, uh, another one called Sarah. What, let me tell you about both of them, okay? Cypher is a company that figure out what's called the protein interactome. How do proteins interact with other proteins? And they can identify the relevant proteins and they've come up with a test to tell you whether, whether a patient that has rheumatoid arthritis is going to respond to a TNF alpha, okay? Which is the first biologic that used. The problem is you don't really know if a patient's gonna respond or not. It's gonna take a few months to figure it out and it's gonna cost $60,000 in those first three months, okay? Just for the cost of the drug, okay? The problem is if you're not gonna be a responder, you now are three months behind the April, okay? Because you don't get better, you get worse. And for these patients with rheumatoid arthritis, as they get worse, it's not like they're gonna suddenly get better, okay? They get worse and they, and they just continue to get worse and they plateau. So you've lost three months of the patient's time. You've cost $60,000 to the system. Wouldn't it be great to know beforehand if we could tell you if you're gonna respond or not? Now, we may not know how good a response, but at least we'll have an idea that you should be a general good responder. That's a type of digital diagnostic. Do a, do a blood test, they figure that out. Sarah is a company that's, that has a test for premature labor, right? Um, 10 to 15% of women go into premature labor. We don't know why, right? We know some factors if you're a smoker. The, the biggest factor for premature labor is if you've done it before, right? But if these babies go into... Uh, you know, if you're a premature baby, you cost the system a lot of money just being in the NICU. And forget the cost to the system, it's the cost to the families. And sometimes it can be really hard as the children as they grow up, right? Mm -hmm. So they've developed a blood test that can identify women at high risk. Can you do something about it? Yes, you can give them progesterone, which is relatively safe and very cost effective. And they've demonstrated in their studies by, by taking the test, identifying these patients and giving the progesterone, they change that trajectory. Those are digital diagnostics. They come about because we could take large number of tests, you know, large number of blood samples and find biomarkers in there that are relevant to these conditions. We're also, you know, very much in the world now of liquid biopsy, right? You know, I'm 52, I mentioned before, right? Uh, I have to get a colonoscopy. I truly do not want to get a colonoscopy. Wouldn't it be great if somebody could just take my blood and tell me whether I have a polyp or not? If I have a polyp, I'll go get a colonoscopy. But I don't, I don't want to get one, right? We're working on liquid biopsies to tell us whether patients have cancer. And it's really gonna change the world because instead of being reactive, which is where medicine has been, when I learned medicine, medicine has been reactive for the past, I don't know, millennia, if not longer, you know, since Hippocrates came about. We react to things. You have an infection, we give you an antibiotic, right? You have a, a mass, we cut it out, okay? If we could be proactive, if we can catch it when it's in stage one and not stage four, it will change the world. And so I really think digital diagnostics is gonna make a tremendous difference. Um, so, I have other places, health, but we can stop. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go, no, no, go for it, go for it. This is fascinating. Synthetic biology, okay. Synthetic biology and, uh, and uh, oligonucleotides and uh, cell and gene therapy. Those are really the places that I would look at. You know, there's other places, the convergence of, of healthcare and technology. Um, one example, by the way, so for example, everybody's now familiar with mRNA, right? DNA genes, DNA makes mRNA, mRNA makes proteins. We give mRNA in the BioNTech and Moderna vaccines for COVID, and they make the proteins that are the, uh, that are the um, surface protein on the capsid of the virus, which the body and then has an immune response to, makes you antibodies, and that's our vaccine, right? But I will tell you something that RNA is very unstable. The reason that Moderna and BioNTech are focused on vaccines is because they can't make their mRNA stand longer than a day. It just doesn't last. And it's immunogenic, okay? It's not the safe, it's safe enough. I don't wanna say anything on this you know, podcast that people say vaccines are bad for you. But in general, if you give the wrong type of RNA, you can get an immune reaction, 
okay? So people are creating new types of RNA and DNA. They call it XNA, okay, D or R, change those. And we're gonna change the chemistry of it. And we're gonna have new ways of making your cells make proteins on command, okay? And that is a convergence of technology that again, changed the world. We have gene therapy, we have cell therapies, we have CAR-T. These are all places where healthcare and technology are really changing the way we live. All right, back to you. So a few, I'm gonna tie some things together here. So going back to the beginning, you said something about medtech being, at least these days, feeling like more like a better mousetrap, right? Um, clearly, well, your background is biotech, you come from medicine, you're clearly passionate about biotechnology and obviously even the digital diagnostics and the diagnostics that you just mentioned. Um, for all those listeners out there, I mean, are we at a technological or technology saturation point with physical med tech, medical devices? And is the world just going to be this no. digitized? No, not We're at not. all. Um, okay. I don't think we are. I think that there's a lot of innovation available. Um, it's a question of finding the right innovation that's really disruptive. Um, and I think that there's potential in med tech to do that also. Okay. Um, you know, there are different ways of solving certain problems. And I've seen some fascinating solutions, for example, for congestive heart failure. One of the major problems in the world today is congestive heart failure from a medical point of view, right? Congestive heart failure. And there are some really amazing med tech solutions to that problem, whether it's the, uh, whether it's the left ventricular assist devices, the LVADs, uh, people are putting in new types of pumps. Um, if you print an organ, okay, and people are doing that now, do you call that a, a medical device? I think of it as a medical device. Now, granted, it's, a, it's, a, it's made out of cells, but in the end of the day, to me, that's a device. I think the whole printed organ thing is going to be a phenomenal transformation. Um, we print bone now. We print cartilage. Uh, and these are relevant because sometimes people get uh, either disfiguring diseases, let's say post-cancer, for example, if they have a head and neck cancer, they've got to cut off an ear. We can, there are technologies now that basically let you remake the cartilage of the ear, put it back on and you can have an ear again. And it makes, yeah. it, it makes a big difference in a person's life. Going back to Israel, I mean, I've heard and been told that there's tremendous amount of software. Um, I, I've talked to other VC firms that used to be the most classical um, medical device investors who have now gravitated towards digital health. There's been a massive movement in, in Israel about digital health. What's turning Israel, and correct me in my statement, but what's turning Israel into this digitized digital software tech hub for healthcare um, versus this tangible, hold it in your hand medical device? Two things. Um, there may be more than two things, but I think there are two obvious things. The first one is that massive amount of data that I spoke about earlier, the HMOs, right? The four HMOs that have 98%. The second thing is, uh, three things really. The second thing is that we've had, we have a very successful um, startup culture in cybersecurity, right? Um, and a lot of tech entrepreneurs who are now graduating from cybersecurity and coming into healthcare, right? Uh, not that there is a new frontier in cybersecurity to go after, but healthcare is actually bigger. Cybersecurity is probably $100 billion a year, right, in general across the world, maybe a little bit more than that. Healthcare, $17 trillion, okay? If you want to go after a total addressable market, $17 trillion is a bigger target, okay? So we have a lot of successful healthcare entrepreneurs like our co-founder, Marius Nach, who are now shifting over to healthcare and bringing their, their technical expertise in software um, and cyber into the healthcare world. And the last thing is that, again, comes back to the Israeli Defense Forces, the army here, you know, the largest division in the Israeli army is a division called 8200, okay? And that's uh, basically an intelligence division. And they get a lot of kids who are trained in algorithms and intelligence and, and applying software and cyber to solving problems. And they come out of that and they bring that to the world of entrepreneurship. I'm going to bounce around on some topics because I want to make sure I'm covering them all. But going back to Amun, I want to demystify the mechanics of how a fund like this actually works. So typically you run into the story of like maybe a micro VC who just opened up shop for the first time and closed a $10 million round and they were successful. So they went out and raised a $30 million fund the next time. 
And then after that, a hundred million dollar fund because they kept on proving themselves. Other times when you talk about the ones who have already proved themselves, they close a $250 million fund, whatever it may be. But it's very, once again, correct me if I'm wrong, rare to see under one roof, a um, early stage fund and a late stage fund and two different philosophies. How does that mechanically work um, as a venture fund? Like how does that function properly? Well, yes, yeah, so I'll tell you. It's, so first of all, it's two separate investing teams, which I do think is important because there are some people who, I'm not saying people can't do both, but there are people who are good late stage investors like me. I like to think I'm a good late stage investor. And there are people who are good early stage investors. And we don't really think the same way. Okay, we don't Why? look for the same things. Why? Well, because when you have an early stage investment, which is very, very high risk, but very, very high reward, you're making an investment of 10 or, you know, 10 or 11 or well, five or $10 million to buy 80% of the company. Okay. Because over time, as you're successful, you're not going to keep putting capital into that company. You're going to ownership is going to get cut down to 10 or 5%. Okay. And in order for that 10 or 5% to be useful, that company has to be worth a billion dollars. Okay. And you get back $50 million and that one investment can pay back your fund. Okay. That's early investing, high risk, high reward. Later stage investing is lower risk, good reward. Um, but you've taken a bunch of risk off the table. So you need to deploy more capital in order to get that ownership in the company. And you're not going to have your ownership cut down so much because that's one of the later set of rounds. You may have to invest in the, that round and the round afterwards, but you maintain your pro rata ownership 10, 15%. Um, but the risk is lower because we've taken a lot of the technology risk off the table. And now it's about execution. It's a different type of investing. It's a different check size. Explain the process. So we have two separate. Yeah. Go ahead. No, nope, go, go ahead. ahead. Finish. Go for it. So I was going to say, so we have two separate investing teams, but behind that two separate investing teams, we have a whole platform. And the platform is really helpful to distinguishing Amun. Because, for example, we have what we call Amun Alpha, which is a group of dedicated people, group of people dedicated to portfolio success, you know, finding talent, creating bridges to scientists in Wall Street, really helping the connections, business intelligence, et cetera. So for us, the reason I think it's a successful platform is because it's a platform. Limited partners, people who invest in funds, some of them want to invest really early stage and that take that type of risk. And some of them want less risk. For, for good returns, and so they want late stage, okay? But it's different, different investors have different requirements, and so we're trying to satisfy both. When you think about going back to med tech um, or even the digital space, so if you get in an early stage investor who's willing to take a three, five, seven, maybe 10 year ride, and, and let's even focus more on the longer of those numbers, um, Late stage investors, are they, are they deploying a bunch of capital looking for a decent return a lot quicker and usually in the game for a year to three years? And is that one of the major differences between early stage and late stage in med tech? Uh, yeah, so by definition though, most venture funds tend to be 10 year funds. The money's locked up. It's not a hedge fund or where the money is callable very quickly, right? Um, you know, you get your money back. Venture funds are locked up because we need to have we need to have the ability to put the capital where we want it for several years. But I do agree with you that med tech tends to be a quicker return. Okay. It's much easier to get CE mark and much easier to get a 510k or whatever it is you need. And then, you know, raise money to go out to the market and sell your device. Um, it's a quicker return. Uh, it's also generally less capital. I'm always comparing it to biotech, okay. right? When it just comes to, to, to uh, when it comes to digital health, Right. When it comes to digital health, digital health tends to be even less expensive. OK. Yeah. Um, and also compared to biotech, it's, it's less capital intensive over time. Right. Your, your PMA trial, your trial to get sort of FDA approval, you know, could be 20, 30 or 40 million dollars in a device. Don't get me wrong. But the amount of capital raised over the life of that device is maybe 60 or 70 million dollars. The life of the amount of capital raised over the approval of a drug is easily close to 200 to 250, you know. So the return is faster, but the return on med tech tends to be a little bit smaller, but that's okay because less money is going in. So, you know, you can still make a very nice return. So 
So I wanted to um, jump into Amun being quite active. I mean, I, my, my fundamental question is what makes a good board member? And, and if you look at your LinkedIn profile, you, you've joined some boards recently, a bunch of boards. I mean, so obviously you have the experience, but, you know, Amun being very aggressive in terms of obviously making investments, but you being a board member, those listening who are thinking about bringing on investors, thinking about who will be their board members, what should they be looking for going back to this foundational question of good money versus bad money or neutral money? Meaning what can they expect more than just a check? Good question. I'm going to give you a cognitive okay. distance. You want people who are who reflect your values. Okay. I think it's very important to find people who you're comfortable with, whom you can trust, who you create a relationship of trust with, who do deep diligence on you, okay, who really care about what they're doing and who could be value add. So the cognitive dissonance is you want them to be alike-minded, okay, but you don't want them to be like you. In other words, groupthink is a terrible way to do anything. You want people who are going to tell you what they really think and who will criticize when criticism is needed, who will give you guidance. You want people who are experienced on the operational side and who have great contacts and really can open up the door for you. You want people who are gonna be value add, who've done it, been there. So if you go through my history of career for whatever it is, I've been a doctor, I've been a sales center, I've been a buy sider, I've been a CEO, I've raised capital in the public markets, I've run a public company. I have a lot of experience that I can bring to people who walked out of the lab to start up a company who have never done anything like this in their life, who don't know how to manage a company, who don't know how to raise capital or more capital, who may not really know how to put together a deck, who don't know how to hire a CFO. What are they looking for in a CFO, right? Who don't know, uh, who don't necessarily have regulatory experience, who don't know how to find a regulatory consultant, who don't know how to hire a CRO. Which CRO do I choose? Do I choose the big CRO that's done it a hundred times, but will pay no attention to me? Or do I choose the local boutique CRO who's going to give me a lot of love, but's never done it before, right? Which way do you do these things? You need people with that sort of operational experience who are like-minded enough that you can create a relationship of trust. Great answer. Um, then going back to you're based in Israel, Amun's based in Israel. You bring this powerhouse of a fund within the borders of Israel. 45% of your fund is in Israel. What are the reasons why a startup outside of Israel would be reaching out to Amun? Uh, for a few reasons. Number one, we're global investors. And if you're looking to find the number one global investor, we're it. Okay. Um, and there are reasons, there are reasons to get a global investor. Okay. Because there are a lot of pockets of these hubs, if you will, these tech hubs that are outside of the United States. Right. And so for example, in one of our companies, you know, they have a technology, which I can't really go into, it's a stealth company, but in essence, the fact that we could open up university labs in Israel was very relevant to them. Some of the key opinion leaders are in Israel, and they looked at that and go, I need that device. I need that in my lab. That was key for us, okay? So we can create the bridge uh, between various pockets. Also, at the end of the day, Israel lies within a similar time zone to Europe. So we're a good tie to the European side. We have deep contacts in Europe. Um, and honestly, as much as we're, uh, Israel, you know, Israel's largest healthcare uh, in, uh, venture capital investor, we have deep contacts throughout the world. We have a platform of about 60 people, 25,000 contacts. You know, we have one of our advisors is Lloyd Miner. He's the dean of Stanford Medical School. Uh, Bob Langer, who's one of the most prolific inventors, is an advisor. You know, we have great contacts throughout throughout the world. And we truly want to be value add to our companies. We're not just people giving you a check. We have of those 60 people, about 15 to 20 of them are dedicated to portfolio success. The companies can turn to us and say, I have a problem with this. What do I do? How do I solve it? Get me this intelligence. What's going on? What's the competitive landscape? Look at my deck, help me fix it. Whatever it is, we're there to make the, we're there to truly help our entrepreneurs be the best that they can be. And at least I've per, when I, whenever I'm in Israel, there's this massive presence of um, Israel exploring, pursuing, and building bridges with China, the East. Um, yep. When we talk about, 
I've talked to a lot of venture funds here in the United States, in Europe, even in Israel. And when we say the word global, there's typically this underlying um, Western focal point. We say global, but is it really global or is it the West? Um, is Amun doing anything in the East? And even if they're not, or even if they're light, is there a missed opportunity from the West not being fully connected to the East? And the reason why I say that is because I, I had a phenomenal podcast that was done a couple of weeks ago. It'll be released in another couple of weeks from now. But it was from a European who has moved over to Shanghai. He's an investment banker in Shanghai now. And he raises money specifically for China, um, from Chinese investors for Western companies. And he said something very fascinating where he goes, there's a big disconnect between the West and the East, but the East knows what's going on in the West. And typically the West doesn't know what's going on in the East. And when we talk about from an investor standpoint, why are some of the reasons why we're not fully global? Um, interesting set of questions. Uh, I'm going to start off by telling you that my major Columbia was East Asian languages. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm not totally ignorant. And in fact, when I was at uh, Piper, my last year at Piper, I was actually covering Chinese healthcare companies. Okay. I mean, I did, uh, I did especially pharmaceuticals, but Piper decided that they want to make a push into China. And I was the analyst who was covering Chinese healthcare companies. So I have some knowledge of the markets, et cetera. I do think that the statement is generally true that the East knows of the West, but the West doesn't know so much about the East. I think it's a very, there is truth to it. Let me say that. But it's not like the East truly understands the West either. There's a lot of disconnect on both sides. I would say that uh, from our, uh, as a global investor, we are global investors. We have not invested yet in China, okay? But we do actually have limited partners from around the world, from Singapore, from Australia, uh, other parts of Asia, from Latin America, from Europe, from the United States, Canada. So from that point of view, we do actually, we are a global investment base. Um, and your LPs are important because they make connections for you. And in fact, one of the companies that I recently invested in, in, the, in uh, San Francisco, UltraBio, we have an investor from Singapore um, that you know, we helped bring into the investment. So, you know, yeah, we are global in that sense. Um, I, do think this, I do think that there is loss of potential value creation by not having better bridges, okay? I think that that's the case. Uh, those bridges are gonna take time. You know, there's obviously, um, you know, some global tensions around certain other things, but, you know, globalization is having its effects. Um, and I think in general, globalization is a benefit to patients. Uh, overall, and you know, those those convergences will continue to happen. Girl, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but honestly, from the biggest health tech investor from a firm perspective in Israel or even the globe, you mentioned um, fascinating insight. I, I greatly appreciate your time. Greatly appreciate you for this, and I want to say thank you again. This is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising capital. Thank you very much, Girl. Thank you, Giovanni. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.